And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. All right, I have one more announcement before I go into the episode. I know these can be super annoying, but this is not a paid advertisement. This is actually about one of my projects. I made a feature film called Fractals, and guess what? It is now available for streaming. Just visit my website, ericnorcross.com. Look for the movie Fractals, and there will be a list of platforms where you can stream it. Thanks. Who's, who's professional enough to call it a media kit. <laughs> you know why? It's because Terry Lovely said, you have to have a media kit now and blah, blah, blah. I mean, he really helped me a lot because I had no idea what to do and he had already done it so he could, you know, advise me. Yeah. Yeah, he was, uh, I love that conversation. And I think that that conversation too spoke to sort of, a lot of people's interest in this subject because that's the one that still like performs. Like if you look at all the interviews I've done since we started the podcast, uh-huh. his is the one that just continues to perform really, really, really well. Wow. And Why do you think that is? I just think people have, even if they're not like, spoke outspoken about it i think a lot of people recognize that this is a a really vital subject like we have to we have to understand what is going on and the best way i think to doing that is just to hear what people have to say people like you people like terry um because we have no reason, like my policy on this is I have no reason in the world to doubt Terry right. or anyone else. Uh, and if I can be somebody who is here to listen to what people have experienced, that to me is doing a service to everyone. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I wrote the book is because I didn't, you know, it's a scary subject and people are scared to death i mean you know it's not a good thing and then you know with the media pushing everything under the rug and pretending like it doesn't exist and those people are just crazy it's so unfair you know yeah i have so i'm in new york city so like the media is largely centralized here and i know so many of the people that work in the media i know people at cnn fox news all these places and i understand like 
the workings of those environments and how it is that they they sort of get to this point where they just don't tell that story, you know, and just the politics of it and the bullying that goes on there. And it's not going to be them. It's going to be independent people like podcasters and uh, independently published authors. These are the people that are going to uh, be responsible for disclosure. Pentagon isn't going to come out of the woodwork and be like, yeah, yeah, you know, well, uh, here's what's really going on in Nevada. You know, like <laughs> that'll never happen. Even if it was ordered at the executive level, they'll find a way not to let it happen. Yeah, I but, agree. Yeah, I was telling telling Terry. He said, "What do you? Who do you think? How do you think we'll get disclosure?" And I said, "I think it's us." <laughs> yeah, I agree with that one hundred percent. So. In in your book, you talk about how in 2017 you discovered that you were sort of part of this abduction program. What were what was your life like before 2017? What were you doing professionally? What were you doing in your personal time? I was in uh, I was in IT and um, so let me fix my phone. I do not disturb. Um, and I worked in the DOD and I, uh, and I lived in California. So I lived in California for about 30 years and, um, we, you know, I, I, I worked at Lockheed Martin for a little bit as a contractor and I worked in for this little company called Vista Research and, um, you know, and my husband, uh, is a network wireless networking expert and, um, he he worked at Cisco, and uh, you know it was just a regular life. There was just no nothing special about it. Um, I had moved around a lot as a kid, and um, you know, and I had lived in Turkey and the Philippines and a couple of other places because of my dad's work. He actually was a mechanical engineer who um, built copper smelters and gold leaching plants. But because I didn't know what he did, and I couldn't say that when I was a little girl, everyone thought he worked for the CIA. So, <laughs> but I did move around a lot, and um, I ended up in California, and then I met my husband, and then we decided to retire and get out of there. They were going to build the 49er Stadium a mile from our house where we lived in Santa Clara, um, near in Silicon Valley. Um, but yeah, my life was completely, you know, boring. <laughs> there was nothing going on there. I mean, occasionally I would have, you know, strange things that I couldn't explain, you know, um, and I wrote about some of those in my book. And there were things where I would think to myself, I wonder what that was, but I wouldn't, you know, really know what it was. I mean, I'd have an occasional dream that would be, um, what do you call it, uh, you know, prophetic, you know, or I just have strange things happening. But I couldn't say what this is. Is this that I'm psychic? I mean, there was no label for it. And there's just no labeling. Um, so I just, you know, would put it in the back of my mind and continue on. Um, I'd been married before. And there were weird things that happened in that marriage. Not with him, but, you know, things that would happen where I'd wake up screaming um, at night. And, you know, I tried to figure out what these things were. But I just didn't know what they were. So, what year did you retire? I retired in two thousand nine. Two 
2000. Oh, okay, so you were retired well before 2017. Yeah. Um, are, are you allowed to disclose what contract work you did for Lockheed? Uh, it was just, well, they would contract me for a specific job, and then I would do, they would have two months worth of work, and then I would be there six months. <laughs> and it was just, I mean, to me, it was hard because I like to be busy, and I was not busy. Uh, sometimes um, if I asked for other work, they would send me on wild goose chases. And I didn't, you know, like, we have never been able to figure this out. Can you work on it? You know, kind of thing. And yeah. so, <laughs> uh, but it wasn't anything uh, especially interesting. I mean, I think the most interesting thing about Lockheed Martin was I was working in the fleet ballistic missiles area and the hallways were so long, you couldn't see the end of them. <laughs> and I would have to find my way to the bathroom and, uh, and then hope I can walk with someone to the cafeteria. Well, I find, I find that interesting though, that, um, you were working there because so much, so many of the people that have come out and spoken about this seem to have an affiliation in one way or another with the Air Force, even if it's their parents or grandparents who were in the Air Force. Oh, wow. And um, that's the, the most common thread that I found in Lockheed Martin's, one of the biggest Air Force contractors. Wow. That's yeah. a really interesting point. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I that's mean, why I started with it. <laughs> you know, it's funny because um, when I wrote my book, I hadn't really had a lot of experiences with other people having this issue. And um, now uh, that I have, there's so many commonalities I didn't realize were common, you know? I just thought this was happening to me in a certain way, but I didn't realize that there were so many things that went along with other people. Yeah. We were all having the same experience. <laughs> That's sort of like why I love reading people's personal experiences about this is because a lot of the times they start writing their book as a, I don't know why you started writing your book, but a lot of people seem to start writing it as a form of therapy, not realizing that there's so much interconnectivity. Yes. Yeah. I think, you're, you know, I believe it because, and I mean, you would know because you've interviewed a lot of people, but as I read other people's um, accounts, I can see that too. And it's kind of weird <laughs> because yeah. in, on its face, our uh, experiences seem so different. I mean, that there are no commonalities and nobody can put the pattern together. Well, that's sort of like what I'm obsessed with. I'm obsessed with the detective work in this regard. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it helps too that like, I'm really dis like, I consider myself very distanced from it. Um, and I think that'll that benefits me to a certain extent because there's no emotional investment. Mm -hmm. But one one question I have before we get into the actual contents of your book is: Do you have a recollection of any experiences growing up as a child, as a teenager? Yes, um, I had um, I had one. You know, after I was 10 and I kept having that weird daydream that I couldn't get rid of. And it was actually a very mundane thing. Um, on, when I was 10, I kept having this recurring daydream while I was living in Turkey that um, I would see my maid, our maid, because when we lived there, that's what was something you needed, was a maid, because I lived there in the 70s, um, would be walking up the hill and I would talk to her. 
And every night, that same daydream I would have, and I couldn't get rid of it. It was like a loop. And so then it actually happened. So when I was 16, I was getting ready to go into my senior year of high school. And my dad, tell, I started having a daydream at night again, um, that uh, we were going, I was going to move to a foreign country. And I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> you know, that's my like greatest fear that right before my senior year of high school, I moved somewhere and that it kept persisting because uh, I thought it was because a friend of, in high school had got moved to South Africa and she also had, you know, and I thought, oh, that's just me, you know, ruminating on the fact that this woman is moving to the to a foreign country. But no, I moved to a foreign country. I moved to the Philippines my senior year of high school. So that that happened and I did have a few other dreams that would come true. So, but again, you know, and I would have extremely vivid dreams. So, um, and I wouldn't know what they meant, you know. Uh, do you feel like you've always been able to differentiate between like, um, and I'm only asking this because this seems to be a common th- th- idea with a lot of the discussions I've had where, some dreams are, they just feel like regular dreams. And then there are dreams that stand out and they feel a lot different and more visceral. Yes. Um, I had this one dream when I was a teenager. It was the scariest dream I've ever had. Um, and I've never had one like it, but it showed a scene of like the California landscape of the brown grass and the little trees. And, um, and, and it was like a, you were looking at kind of like at a windshield. And and I hear, ah, ah, you know, laughter. And then, oh, my God, what are you doing? What are you doing? And scre- screaming bloody murder. And at that time, the, you know, one of the hillside strangler or, you know, different um, murderers or serial killers were around. And, um, you know, that scared me because... I didn't know if I really saw something or, and I didn't know where that was, you know, it was sort of like, yeah, is this information you're giving me? Because there is no, nothing I can do with this. I don't know what this is. I don't know where it is. I don't know if it's true, you know? So that was a really, really scary dream. Um, and um, the rest were, you know, nothing was ever like that. So, in tw- what happened in 2017? In 2017, um, I was uh, meditating and I um, was feeling like a negative presence in my room. And um, I asked my spirit guide that I was talking to, uh, what is that negative presence? And he said, it's the ETs. They're here to come. They've come to take you. And um and they, he also said, um, they have taken all of your eggs and that's why you don't have children. And it was interesting because in the past, um, I had wondered, you know, why I never had the ticking clock, but I didn't think it was because I didn't have eggs. But, um, and that pushed me forward to, you know, find out what, it, what was happening, how it was happening and um, what to do about it. You've always been a meditator? No, I haven't. Um, for whatever reason, I got into meditation when I moved to Arizona. I moved to Arizona in 2011, and that seemed to be a thing I would do. I also never wrote in a journal. 
but all of a sudden when I was, I never felt like I had anything to say, but now when I moved to Arizona, I started writing everything down, which I thought was strange and unusual, you know, but knowing what I know now, I wonder if, you know, that was just like a, <clears throat> a mechanism for healing, you know? Yeah. Well, let's let's open this book up here. <laughs> you talk about your spirit guide. How did you? How do you, how do you find your way to being able to communicate with your spirit guide? Like, how did you find this that this individual is around? Uh, are you able to to sort of unpack the history of that? Sure. Um, Rather than because we're like introducing a character out of the blue all of a sudden. Right, you know? right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, when I first moved here, um, like I said, I started getting into uh, meditation. I also started um, like I heard something while I was I was watching TV. I was watching American Idol and I was thing, think, singing to myself, I wish I could sing. And um, I heard a voice say, well, be grateful for the gifts you have you already have. And, you know, I thought to myself, what, you know, I don't know that I have any gifts, you know? Um, and I'm like, what gifts? Um, so that was my first foray. Um, then I felt like I was getting messages from my grandmother and my, um, different people in my family and I didn't know what to do. So I, then I continued meditating. I tried to connect to other groups like on Facebook that would give me um, help on figuring out what this is because I didn't know what it was and I didn't think I had any gifts. You know, that was another thing. So I, you know, flailed around a little, looked, you know, read books, uh, did this, did that, tried to connect with other, with mentors. And, you know, if you're trying to figure out What's going on with you? Where do you go? Who helps you? So one of the things I did was I started looking around for a mentor for, um, for mediumship or stuff like that. And I found a woman, you know, four years later, a woman who was um, doing, you know, giant meditation groups. And also uh, she taught people how to be a medium. And, you know, and when I met her, she said, oh, you're just like me, you're a medium. So, you know, I didn't quite believe it, but it's like, okay, um, she thinks I'm a medium and she's a medium. So I have to believe it because what, you know, why else would she say that? So uh, I started going to her, her meetup or not meetups, but she had a, a, a situation, a um, office where we would meet up with her meditation group and meditation in a group is pretty powerful. And so that's how it all started. So she was telling me, we need to contact our spirit guide. Um, let's find out what their names are. Let's, you know, so she put, put me through that. And then that's how I, I said, Oh, guess what? Some, I can hear someone talking. His name is Coreg and she told me what to do. And so I did it. And, there you go. That's what happened. Coreg. Is Coreg still around? Um, not no. It is, he isn't. So that's the weird Interesting. thing. 
So I'm going to skip around the chapters because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that um, you, you talk you talk, talk a lot about your story on other podcasts, which I'm also going to link to because I think there a lot of the a lot of the conversations I heard were really good conversations. So we don't need to like tackle the same area um, in the same way. Um, but there's in chapter nine, you're talking about beware of remote viewers, and you're the only person who's I found that can unpack that has unpacked sort of what it feels like when certain different types of remote viewers are finding you. So you describe a thunk, like the thunking of a watermelon for when a human uh, finds you, or you describe the sound of a crack or the feeling of a crack when an ET has found you through remote viewing or a snap, which you call invisible beings. Can you describe further sort of this idea um, and kind of how you learned all this, I guess? Well, (laughs) um, I learned it all through trial and error. But um, initially, I because I had this strange experience when I was trying to learn how to remote view, um, I had a situation where I was sitting in my, you know, I was sitting right here, actually. And I was trying to do the remote view and all of a sudden I felt like I was transported to another room and I wasn't in my room and there was men standing around me um, drinking coffee, like in styrofoam cups. Um, They were wearing business attire, like khaki pants and white shirts. And I was in a, you know, a place I was in front of a computer, but the computer um, monitor was a CRT. So I didn't think I was, I knew I wasn't in my room, <laughs> in my own room. And suddenly I was there. So when that happened, um, I heard somebody say, oh, there you are. And I thought, oh my gosh, where am I? Um, and then that's when I started having all of these cracking, thunking and snapping noises at various times. And I associated with remote viewers. Um, but it turns out that they are remote viewers, but they're also, some of them are shapeshifters. And so that's part of the problem. Um, you know, you can't really see them, you know, you can hear them. And um, so what happens is, you know, you're in the situation where things are happening to you. You can't stop it. You don't know what it is. You don't know who they are. And, um, you know, and it just went from there. And I would say that after having the remote viewer experience, um, my life has gotten a lot worse. So, but when I talked to, um, I took a couple of other classes, one with Lynn Buchanan, he told me that that is not a remote viewer. So um, I don't really know, uh, you know, what those were, but I do think some of them are remote viewers because there is a noise when you hit the membrane of wherever you're going, it creates a noise or a like a resistance with your body when you do uh, extended remote viewing. So um, I took uh, controlled remote viewing, which is using coordinates and extended remote viewing where you're, you know, you listen to music, you get into a meditative state, and then you go somewhere in your mind. And I guess people are really are going places. Um, I've heard of another remote viewer named Tim Rafat, and he does Russian remote viewing. And 
it's a totally different thing. So there are tons of remote viewers and tons of remote viewing. But if you have remote viewers in your house, yeah, it's not a good situation because most remote viewers are not trying to remote view people and harass them. They are just, you know, looking at, you know, Mars and, you know, other things. They're not interested in an individual. So what does that mean for you if they're interested in you? I don't know. It's not good. Um, in my book, you know, I ta tell you all these things. Um, what, what they've done to me is they've turned everything against me. So my tools don't work for me anymore. Nothing works. Uh, if I like music, they play music in my head all the time, uh, somehow. So I don't know if that's mind control. I'm not really sure. Um, but the situation is extremely uh, dire. You know, <laughs> there's just your whole life is turned upside down. So I don't know if it was ET remote viewers or reptilians that were, you know, harassing me. Uh, it's because if it's because I wrote a book about it, I'm not sure. It's just they, so they, they still do it even after you publish this book. Yes, actually, well, it got even worse. Oh, wow. Um, what was the latest circumstance? When did this last happen? Um, let me think. Well, when I'm uh, I take Krav Maga and when I'm there, they're there. <laughs> oh, okay. And they're trying to interfere with my uh, thinking and trying to keep me from um, not, you know, of my mind wandering so that I'm not listening to my teacher and that kind of thing. So mm. that's one of the things. They sound like assholes. They are. <laughs> they are. Actually, I'm just going to say it. Arrogant assholes when I'm thinking about them. <laughs> yeah. So. You talk about time bending in terms of describing um, sort of what what it feels like when they take you and then return you. Um, and is, is is this the same or is it different than when people describe missing time? You know, I, I think I don't know, because, you know, I think when you feel like you're gone somewhere, there's just a feeling of a void. And that's how it is for me. So I've talked to other people and they just remember intense amount of fear and then nothing. So I think it's the same, but, you know, everybody describes their experiences differently, right? And, you know, to describe a feeling that, I mean, if it's hard enough to label a situation when you're a little kid, it's sort of similar. You don't have the words. And I actually made up that word time bending because I didn't have a word that would describe what was actually happening to me um, because it feels like, you know, you're just not there. You were there and you felt like you were like in your car and then you felt like you weren't in your car. Where did you go? You don't know. So in that way, it's extremely um, hard to describe. So I think it could be, but you know, when it happens to me, I don't always look at the time. Now, uh, if I'm in my car, but I have uh, recently done an experiment where I have I'm joined a um, UFO group called Ciro, and um, everyone in there is abductees, 
and we've described and we started you know doing experiments to see if we could figure things out now um, I wore my watch to bed one time and um, I found out that my watch said it was 2 a.m but my clocks my all of the clocks in my entire house said it was 203 does that mean there was missing time could all of those clocks be wrong while my watch which is just a regular watch not an Apple watch said another time. I mean, those are mysterious things. Is it, you know, that the, I mean, I don't know. We just don't know. So if you do investigations like that, there's just no, there's no answers. You know, you're trying to figure out what's happening, but how can you, you only have so much information. I mean, are you going to synchronize all your clocks and then, you know, keep a watch of it? Um, and one of the things that happens, and it happens to me too, is if I get something to work once, I can't get it to work a second time. So it's as if the ETs um, know that I'm going to do that. So I can catch them off guard once, but then afterwards I can never catch them off guard again. Because if they see that I'm wearing my watch, they know I'm trying to catch them for evidence in the time, right? So it, it's really difficult. And the evidence thing is extremely, makes everything extremely difficult because we can't get a continuation. I mean, unless we can get everybody doing the same thing, we can't get a continuation of experiments. Yeah, well, that's the thing I talked to Colin Kelleher about. Do you know who he is? No. He was the guy who was basically running operations uh, for Skinwalker Ranch back in the late 90s. Okay. Or early 2000s. And they had the hardest time repeating some of the activity that they were logging. And the thing with the scientific method is you need repeating data. Exactly. Uh, and so one of the questions I asked him was, can the science, does this scientific method coincide with, like, is it good enough to investigate the paranormal? And just, I honestly don't know that it is. <laughs> it's, it's it's impossible. I mean, yeah. they don't. The thing that people don't understand is evidence is key, and they don't want you to have it. So they will do anything. Um, you know, when I I've taken photos, and my fo phone and my computer are both compromised by someone. And um, you know, if I get and get any evidence, what they do is since they're on my phone. They just blur the photo or they delete it. So, um, you know, I've started taking to printing them. But even if I print them and put them in my safe, they can access my phone and my safe. Even if it's turned off on airplane mode, turned off and in a Faraday bag, they can access my phone in my safe. So are they doing it remotely? I mean, I, you know, so there's a lot of. So if they'll go into a safe and, and take out your printed picture for your evidence, who is this and why are they doing it? Yeah. Well, I have theories about about the how, but it's all just theoretical physics for the most part and the way SSD drives store data. But I'm not going to unpack that because we just don't have time uh, for the for the <laughs> so intro lesson. It's remote. Okay, so just make it smaller. And is it a remote? Are they accessing your phone remotely? Are they well, accessing the 
that's kind of a loaded loaded concept because we're thinking in terms of signals right whereas if we if we if we were to look at it from a quantum mechanics standpoint it's much more possible and okay. what what would be possible i guess but i'll i'll like i'll try to think of a distinct a, a more concise way to explain what i'm thinking and i'll email it to you okay and then maybe we can do another episode down the road about it because okay. uh, I would, I would like to consult with a computer technician to make sure that what I'm thinking is actually on point. <laughs> okay. Um. So, have you ever heard the the idea that people who encounter the I call them the others? It's just a nice broad stroke term for whoever these people are. Um, that you have 20 seconds to get to realize what's going on and to get out there's like a 20 second thing where whatever you feel in that first 20 seconds is the right feeling and after 20 seconds they've manipulated your feelings and it's something i've been seeing again and again with some of the books that i've been reading where um if you feel fear in the first 20 seconds that is the right feeling and you should get out because right. uh, after that they can turn it around on you and make you feel the false feeling of joy right Yes, I, I actually agree. And um, actually, one of the things that's happened to me um, after writing the book and just being in this situation is that um, I actually feel like they control all of my emotions, but it's only the negative ones. I actually don't have any positive emotions anymore. Uh, if I feel fear, it's them. If I feel sadness, it's them. If I feel despair, hopelessness, like I'm never going to get out of this situation. It's them. It's never me. And, you know, at first I didn't realize that because why would you think that your feelings are not your own, but whoever this is, they completely manipulate them and they want, you know, I think they're feeding off the fear, you know, like narcissists. And that's what I put in my book. Um, but they want you to feel those negative feelings. Um, they benefit from them in some way. And so, yeah, I don't know um, if I have, I actually feel uh, what I'm supposed to anymore because of what they've done to my feelings. Um, and they also mess with your body just in general. Um, they gave me malnutrition, and I know Terry had that too. Um, so you know, you don't know what's going on in your entire body, then if your feelings are messed up, what about your subconscious, you know, all this stuff, and um, it's pretty negative on its face. But yeah, I, I, I actually had a panic attack, and I don't have panic attacks last night, and I know it was them. So they wanted me to wake up, which they can wake us up. If they can knock us out, they can wake us up. And then, um, and then I realized, oh, this isn't me. And I even said, that's not me. And then I had to calm myself down because you have the whole racing heart. You have everything that they want you to feel. So you had a panic attack just last night? Yes. Jeez. So, so yeah, because one of the questions I had was about fear because you have a chapter dedicated to it. And that's one of the things that crossed my mind when I was reading um, the Mojave incident. I don't know if you read that one by Ron Felber. I had him on the podcast last season. And What's it called? The Mojave Incident. Okay. And it seemed to me that the incident that he was describing 
it was really just as we call them in this podcast now the assholes it was yeah. just the assholes just delighting in the fear that they were inflicting and that's all it felt like it was just about fear and learning about fear and experiencing fear and uh, I was thinking during that conversation what if and this is just me just hypothesizing what if they don't understand fear or what if um, maybe fear is the thing that makes us as a species the biggest threat to them like this kind of thing um, because I do think that it all comes down to fear in some way or another and you had an interesting statement about how fear can is a great mechanism for control yes i think if you can control people's emotions right how much control do you have over them all of it and if they're fearful if they're depressed i mean what can you do with that you know so yeah i think fear is you know i mean one of the reasons things that i thought later was that i was so glad i didn't have children because Imagine I had children, I could be also emotionally manipulated by using those children against me. Um, it's bad enough, you know, they say, oh, yeah, your husband's going to have a surgery, back surgery. Okay, we're going to kill him, you know. And so, you know, to be able to say, and I did say this in my book and to Bob, it's like, that's emotional blackmail. And I'm not, I'm not doing it. Um, so, when they told me, you know, we're going to kill your husband when he's in a surgery, I said, okay, you know, now Bob's still here for everyone listening. Um, but I was just like, no, I'm not going to be emotionally blackmailed um, because of something you're getting out of it. I don't know what it is, but I don't, you know, that's his journey. This is my journey, but I'm not going to be emotionally blackmailed. So I think that there's a lot of negativity that can be wrung out of emotionally blackmailing people by uh, saying you're going to hurt their animals, their kids, you know, their grandparents, whoever, you know, it's just a way of control. Yeah. Do you, can you talk a bit about programming? I think this is interesting because one of the most horrifying aspects of this whole phenomenon is the, it seems like free will can be switched on and off at any given moment. And that's terrifying to me because I'm obsessed with the concept of free will. Uh, whenever I'm writing a science fiction story in any kind of way, you can always boil it down to what is free will a thing? Right. <laughs> um, you know, I think since they can control your emotions and if they're programming your mind, you know, whether by physically programming it, you know, by, you know, lifting you know, putting something underneath your scalp. Um, I have found that I have indentations in my scalp, like as if there's been holes drilled into my skull. And um, also, and this is interesting, I found that there was, I have something underneath my scalp that feels like a TENS unit, you know? Have you ever had that electricity like on a muscle and they're trying to stimulate it? Um, it feels like, and it, sometimes it feels like electric worms. Well, I've, I have the, I have something like that underneath my scalp, and um, my husband does too. So he is, you know, he's in the same boat as I am. He just doesn't know it. And so one night it was going off, you know, and I could feel it moving underneath there. And I said, "Oh my gosh, the worms under my scalp are going off." And and I said, "Sometimes it feels like that." And he said, "I feel that too." So he has it, you know. Um, so. 
with programming, um, they're programming your uh, thoughts, they're programming your uh, feelings. I mean, they have complete control of you. And so uh, do you have free will? If, you, if someone else is in control of your mind, um, I don't think so. I don't think you have free will. And um, I actually had a dream or a remote view of there are no choices. And I think there is a choice, but it's not, probably not one you're going to like, you know? So I don't think we have as much control as we think we do. And um, our only, you know, thing that will help us get, move on is not letting our emotions carry us away. But yeah, there is other programming uh, from my, in my book, I wrote about um, programming on TV and how they are, you know, constantly programming you to buy things and to, you know, you know, the whole wedding industry, the dress is the most important thing. I mean, Cinderella, you hear that all the time, right? So everybody wants to be the princess. And is that programming? Is that just marketing? Is marketing programming? I mean, I don't know. It's just that I, with the ETs especially, um, I think that they have complete control of you and they, and they have programmed your mind in the way they want it to be. Uh, so that what benefits them most. And so that's what I think. So you call them narcissists. I love that. Because <laughs> I do think narcissists are the most dangerous kind of people. Yes. Um, why do you call them that? Um, I call them that because of all of the similarities they have, um, the ETs do with narcissists, you know, narcissists don't only care about themselves, they have their own agenda, um, they, you know, their goal is actually to make your life miserable and chaotic, it's not, it's not in any way to help you, um, so, um, you know, uh, I had, had a sister that was one, my parents were, had narcissistic tendencies, and it's confusing, you know, their job is to confuse you and make sure you never know what's going on, <laughs> you know, and doesn't that sound like the ET? Um, so, and then they bully you, they're bullies, they punish you by, you know, harming you. And then, you know, the ultimate betrayal is they erase your memory. You have no memory of what really happened. You just have bruises. And to me, the whole thing is extremely narcissistic. Um, and I think a lot of the people that are being abducted are the nice people. I mean, seriously, why would they want to wring uh, some emotion out of a turnip of another of a narcissist that's like them, right? So I think um, they just want to, you know, make our lives miserable. So, and that's what narcissists do. They're just, uh, this is all about me. And it's also all about money. So with a narcissist, it's all about money. Now, I don't know um, what the ETs, if some of them want to you to throw money tr around like the reptilians trying to find a solution to your problem. That's a possibility. Um, and so I think a lot of people do. I mean, I read books all the time. I'm constantly trying to figure out what's going on. And um, so I think and they're also all about control. Control is their agenda. And so that's why I made the, um, the comparison that narcissists and ETs are the same. So one of the things about your book that I really like, um, 
because it's the polar opposite of my pet peeve with the whole thing is there's a so there's a lot of people who uh talk about uh their their time with these others as spiritual awakenings and they sort of talk about it glowingly i appreciate that your book is abducted and furious and it's all about fighting back uh and um can we unpack sort of some of the things that you've discovered in terms of how you fight back against sure. these uh, assaults? Yes. Um, one of the things was um, I actually, um, I found some, well, you know, when, when this is happening to you and you're so afraid, you know, at first you do the normal things, right? And you try to catch them in the act and all that and it never works. I mean, people always wonder, why don't they have evidence? It's because we can't get it. <laughs> um, so, and we try, we try really, really hard. Um, and so then I just started searching around. I ended up uh, taking some healing classes and um, which I didn't think would be a, you know, I just thought, what the heck, might as well try it. Um, and also, and that's how I see everything. It's like, well, I have nothing to lose. Might as well try it. So I ended up reading some books by Stuart Swerdlow, and uh, he wrote some uh, very interesting healing books. And um, so I found some tools in there for uh, negating negativity in your life. And um, there's a tool called the cancellation tool. And it's basically, I now brown axe out all unnecessary negativity in my life. I now brown axe out blank according to the wishes of my oversoul and God mind. Um, so you say this to yourself um, and to negate your negativity. And um, so I just started trying to use it and trying, trying different things. Um, I thought the book said, you know, you need to use protection. So there's a protection tool in there. And then I just started doing basically trial and error for everything. And I just did it all the time. I thought about it all the time. Um, and so I also used a tool to find out what was happening um, behind the scenes, so to speak, in my subconscious called the green spiral staircase. And basically, it's sort of like a self-hypnosis tool. I mean, I didn't realize that when I was writing the book because I hadn't had regression therapy, um, hypnotic regression. Um, since the ETs use mind control and hypnosis and give you hypnotic suggestion, I didn't want to for a while, you know, investigate that. But when I did, I realized a spiral staircase is a similar thing that they use. So um, with the green spiral staircase, when you have uh, when you have a dream and you're stressed or or you don't know what these dreams mean, you can use this green spiral staircase to look back in your own mind and see it and see what's really happening. Because um, when I read Whitley Strieber's book, Communion, I realized that the screen memory is something that our, our mind creates. It's not the ETs. And that was a huge revelation for me. Because how can you figure out what's going on if an ET gave you and put something in your mind? So once I realized that, I thought, hey, I can find out what's happening behind that. So that's what the Green Spiral Staircase does. And um, it allows you to look behind the scenes of the screen memory so that you can see what was really happening. And then you can use your cancellation tool on those elements. And um, it does really work. Um, I've talked to other, I've gone on other podcasts 
and they all say that it does work. So, but you know, when you're, you know, when you're having a negative experience, when you have so many other people saying, no, no, you're misunderstanding them. It's really good. And uh, we all love it. And we love taking care of our hybrid children and all that. Um, you know, finding someone else to work with you and say, does this work for you? You can't find them. So um, that's why I wrote the book partly is to say, if you're having this experience and you're not happy about it, here are some tools. And I tried to be as thorough as possible. I might've been a little redundant in my um, outline, but I wanted people to spark people's imagination and say, these are, this is a stepping off point. You can take this as far as you want. It's your own mind. So. Is there uh where is it? I don't remember if it was in the book or not, but where can people get instructions if they wanted to try the green spiral staircase self-hypnosis uh, device, I guess? Um, it's, it's in my book. It is in your book. Okay. Yes. And also um, Stuart Swerdlow has a book called The Hyperspace Helper. And it's in there. He has a lot of other um, other exercises to do. Um, and you probably should go through all of them. It's just that I didn't, for purposes of, of my book, I just wanted to put that in there. Then they can, when they get the, they have that book, they can, you know, do all the other exercises and go as far as they want. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to give them a stepping off point. Yeah, yeah. Um... Okay, so I'll link to his book as well because I think that uh, it would make sense for people interested in this topic to get both. Yeah, and actually there's a third book. Um, it's uh, Healing Symbols and Archetypes. And uh, that's also in my book. Um, and uh, yeah, link to both books. I think it's best to get both. Cool, yeah. When I think you I'll... Yeah, when sorry. you realize it, it's better. Yeah. I, I like the idea of having a sort of intact discourse. So I'll probably read those other two as well. Okay. Um, yeah, my ever since I started the subject on the podcast, my bookshelf for this subject has just keeps expanding because it's sort of a rabbit hole. Once you read one person's book, it goes into the next one that might go into three more. <laughs> Absolutely. That's true. And actually I have, my husband's like, do you need all of these books? You know, and I don't know if I need them. I mean, you know, maybe I want to reread some of these things. Maybe, you know, things in my life have changed so much that I want to revisit it and see what else I missed, you know, because that's one of the things, you know, when this is happening to you, um, there's so many, many more questions than answers. And as you have experience, unfortunately or fortunately, you then can look back and say, oh, that's what that meant. Oh, that's what that meant. You know, because otherwise, you know, it's just a bunch of noise. So it's good to have other people's viewpoints of their their situations and also their um, description, which can say to you, oh, my gosh, that's that's what's happening to me. Do you have do you have people that reach out to you and like where they didn't know that this was happening to other people or maybe they didn't feel like there were other authors talking about this that they could reach out to? Yes, I do. I have gotten quite a few people uh, contacting me and saying, you know, I um, have had really weird experiences all my life and I didn't even know what was going on and 
can you direct me to different groups and you know that kind of thing a lot of them see me on the um, podcast though um, and then contact me also yeah um, how how active has the Facebook group been for you it's been somewhat active um, I have moments when I feel like I have a good question and so I'll ask a question now initially I was kind of annoyed that I couldn't get anyone to answer questions but you know this is a really weird subject and I think that um, a lot of people don't want to say you know exactly what's happening to them and I can understand why now especially now after all everything I wrote down was turned against me so um, in that book. So because of that, I can understand why people don't want to write down exactly what's happening to them, because then they'll know and they'll block it. You know, if it's good, they'll block it. Um, so now I just ask, ask questions and I just want to stretch people's minds. And, you know, sometimes I'll uh, ha- and I'll put in what's happening to me at that time. Um, so I know that I was recently talking about my computer. My computer was compromised early on in 2017, I believe, or 2016, and what was happening and how, you know, whoever it is has access to all my financials, all my, um, all of my passwords so they could impersonate me. And I was trying to understand if anyone else had had that, what would be the purpose of an ET wanting to have access to that? And it was interesting, you know, so it's good to get other people's viewpoints on that. And, uh, you know, and then other times I just ask questions that I've wondered myself and and other people occasionally will post other things. I'll get one guy that will answer all the questions and then he'll leave or he'll stay and won't, it won't be as active. And then another person will show up and be more active, so... I don't know. It's sometimes active, sometimes not. Do you ever feel like when you're doing something like a podcast or something like that, that strange things will will happen before or after you start yeah. speaking publicly about, like right now, for example? Yes. Actually, when I first started doing all of the podcasts, I mean, my phone would uh, always ring. I'd get spam calls. Um, things would fall off shelves. Um, you know, I would, equipment would not work. Um, there would always be sound problems, um, you know, on and on and on. I mean, there's so many things. And um, sometimes it would be like, there would be like anger from the ETs when I have the nerve to speak out about them. And so, yeah, sometimes I get a few more bruises for them to show their displeasure so yes yeah I, I have noticed that ever since I opened up this show to the topic that strange things do happen like um, when I first introduced it um, I reached out to a whole bunch of different people including Terry simultaneously like I would just knock off different emails inviting everybody and within an hour everybody I invited accepted accepted the invitation which is like really unheard of really like maybe for every 15 invites i'll get a yes maybe a maybe a maybe is also a good thing too but um most of the time i never hear back but with this subject everybody not only said yes they said yes within an hour 
in that evening, <laughs> this was last year, in that evening, I went for a walk, and there were so many strange lights in the sky that I'm just like, oh, I think the universe is very interested in my interest in this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I've heard stories like that, too, where... Um, Actually, Terry's a great one. He he talks about how the moment he started writing the book or thinking about writing the book, they sort of sat him down. <laughs> and they're like, ah. you shouldn't do this. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I wish they'd done that for me. <laughs> it's funny, too, because he talks about how the, this whole experience, he wishes they would just sit him down in the living room and just have a conversation with him and finally when he decides to write a book they do what he wanted they sat him down in his living room and had a conversation with him and it's just like wow when they really want something for you i guess they can be nice but he wrote his book anyway which he which i'm glad he did yeah it's interesting well i i I found because they're like narcissists that there's something in it for them Right. And that's why they're allowing it. It's not because they have goodness in their heart. It's because they feel like it's a benefit or maybe you'll write about something that they want you to write about, you know, because it's a form of control. Yeah. I think that's the key too to really not only understanding it, but eventually stopping it altogether. Uh, What is it that they're getting? It's sort of like if the chicken found out we were taking its eggs you know, yeah. <laughs> what then the chicken would just have to figure out how, how to keep us from doing that. And yeah. uh, it's that sort of thing. Cause that's what it feels like. It feels like we're like this whole planet. is just some sort of ranch that they're just taking something, but we don't know what it is they're taking. Right. And we know it's rooted in fear and we know it's rooted in some way or another reproduction. Right. Exactly. And so it's, you know, it benefits them in some way, but it benefits them that we're in the dark, right? Yeah. If we knew, we might do something about it. Uh, if we knew exactly what was happening, what would we do with that information? It wouldn't be good for them. So yeah. that's why they keep us in the dark. Um, Knowledge is power. Yes, it is. Knowledge is power. Well, I I appreciate you coming on here and just talking a little bit about your book. I, if you, is there something that is there anything else you would like to to discuss? Um, we got through all my bullet points about it. I'm going to hold it up to the big camera here so people can see what it looks like. It's called Abducted and Furious. <laughs> so it's a pretty good book. And oh, you know what? I really love how you you keep sort of a catalog of just your your your, the experiences you notice so you just have these dates and you just kind of keep a log like a journal i woke up to this or i dreamed this or i do the same thing um (laughs) i I do it's right here it's i don't have them as i don't have them that frequently but i do have a journal here where if there's something truly odd I'll write it down and it's a specific book and I keep it kind of tucked away so nobody who's visiting me can see it. Yeah. Um, uh, when, when did you start doing this sort of type of journaling uh, or logging? Well, when I started having first when I was, well, I'm older than you, I'm sure. 
So anyone over the age of 40 can't remember everything anymore. So if you're over 40, you know that if you're under and you're thinking, no, my mind's a steel drum. Um, so it's partially for keeping, you know, the information straight, you know, the information that I get. And then I would just have these um, especially strange dreams. I would want to remember it all. And sometimes I'd want to actually feel the need to draw it, which I thought was strange because I have no artistic ability at all. And so um, I just started thinking, you know, I got to write this stuff down because this is so strange. I'll never remember every detail of it. And so um, I just started writing it down every day, what happened. And that way I felt like also I could have kind of like, a tapestry of strange things so that eventually I would have more puzzle pieces. Like, you know, if you're doing a puzzle and you get all the corners or the, all the edges, then you can fill in the middle. But before that, you don't know what you're looking at, you know? So I just needed a way to kind of um, categorize all the things that were happening to me and then see if it meant anything later. Or when I look back, would it mean anything then? And it just seemed to me to be the right thing to do. And since I would wake up at like 4 a.m. every day and I would remember my dreams, I would write it down, write everything down that I could remember. Or if I felt like I had an epiphany, I'd write that down. So it started like that and it just went on for, for a long time like that. Um, I don't do it so much anymore because um, whatever I do remember, the ETs turn that against me. Now they read what I wrote <laughs> and then they use it against me later. So <laughs> I don't do that so much anymore. So whatever helps me gets turned against me. Um, so, you know, but I recommend that everybody else do it because it's important. What's an example of how they would use it against you? Um, let's see. Um, okay. Well, uh, I thought they were in my passwords. Um, so I have a password manager and I sync my password on my computer and on my phone. Um, I thought, you know, they're on my phone, they're on my computer. I'm going to get a new password manager. Um, so I wrote down the new password and I wrote it down and put it in a Rolodex. And I don't know why I didn't think they would find that, but they did, and they changed the password on the new, and they stole the Rolodex card. So, <laughs> so that's what I mean. So everything is like that. So anything that can benefit you, um, if they, if you're listening to music to cheer yourself up, then they play it in your head um, all the time. Um, if until you're sick of it, but only like a clip. Like there's, I used to country dancing and there was a song called loving you is fun and uh they just use that part over and over loving you is fun so as if i'm getting so much enjoyment out of this loving you you know kind of like you know an asshole thing <laughs> so those are the kind of things they're sadistic they're you know they just want to make sure that and they also want to isolate you. So what they do is they make sure that everyone feels like there's something weird about you. And of course, you don't want to talk about your ET experiences now. So you, your, your circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And um, it's just, 
it's just a horrible existence. It's I think it's worth it to write the book, but the aftermath is just really hard. Yeah. Well, that sort of last part is sort of why I give everyone the benefit of the doubt. And because um, one, I have no reason not to believe anyone like um, what people experience is what they experience. And um, I do think there's it's like you said, you're, you get you're collecting these puzzle pieces I think everybody's experience too is just a collection of puzzle pieces. And if we can get enough of them, uh, we can f- sort of figure out what the end game is and how to deal with it. Um, right. But I think we're a long way off. <laughs> we are. And I actually think that's by design because if we were closer, then they would be threatened and they don't want to be threatened. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. And uh, they don't want to feel that loss of control. So. I think that's part of the problem. And but you know, since I should just talk to more uh, podcasters because I didn't realize there were so many similarities. Or you know, uh, like Dr. David Jacobs was saying that he started hearing the same story over and over. You know, I mean, once you get get rid of all the nitty gritty details, there are some you know aspects or structural aspects of the situation that are identical. And so I didn't know that the Air Force was such a force in, you know, ETs, but um, it makes sense, right? Um, for instance, people would ask me, well, when, ha- when things happen to you, why doesn't your husband wake up? And it's like, I don't know. And that's common with every single abductee. The other person doesn't wake up. And I think it's because they've knocked us out. They knocked out that other guy too, whoever else was in the room. So it's not that unusual but yet that's the common question is why didn't your husband wake up when this was happening and it's because they've done something to him you know and that's common across the board so uh it's good to talk to people and know that you know these are these questions that i wonder myself are actually answered by other people having the same problem yeah well that was one of the things that that Terry talks about in his book is because he was Air Force, I believe. Yes, and he, he was. had an OSI investigation. He was the subject of an OSI investigation, and he implies that they may have known that he was headed out there, and that what would happen. Right. And that's an interesting. Uh, didn't I don't know that he straight out said it, but that that was definitely the implication. Yeah, I agree with that. And actually, it's interesting. So I lived in California for 30 years and decided to move. Um, But I always felt like I should move to Arizona. And I, I caution people now in my group, don't do it, don't do it, because I think it's part of their plan. You know, it's like get because in my um, zero group that I'm in, People go, oh, I feel the call to go and move to a certain area, or I feel drawn to, you know, this state or that state. But I think that that is, it's because they know what's going to happen to you. It's to their benefit, right, that this happens to you. So I was drawn to Arizona, and I moved here, and I don't regret moving to Arizona, but I didn't expect all these things to happen to me once I moved here. And that's exactly what happened. Did they know? Were they drawing me here so they could enjoy the fruits of their labors? And, you know, I don't know. Hard to say. 
Um, did you, have you ever read any of the research done by Bud Hopkins or John Mack? Uh, not John Mack. I am going to get some of his books. Um, I have read some John uh, Bud Hopkins. Um, when I did read it initially, when I was in my 20s, I uh, was really scared. <laughs> so I couldn't finish his book. But I did uh, read Deb Cobble's book, um, who was his was Kathy Davis, I think, in Bud Hopkins books. Um, so I did read her book and we had a lot of similarities. And in fact, um, in the Ciro group, it was kind of interesting. Um, everybody in their thirties had some sort of, uh, had, was diagnosed with pre-diabetes. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people had eye surgeries in their thirties and I did too. So I was diagnosed with pre-diabetes in my 30s, and everybody else was too. And um, and also I had cataract surgery in my 30s. Now, the funny thing was, is I had, you know, severe myopia growing up. And then um, somehow suddenly had congenital cataracts. They just appeared. And my <laughs> ophthalmologist said, it's congenital cataracts. And I said, have you seen it? Or I probably didn't say this, but I was thinking, how, did he see it before? But he said they just appeared. So, so that's why I had to have cataract surgery at the age of 32. And so Deb also had, I think, cataract surgery in her 30s. And other people did too. So, you know, there are so many similarities and a lot of issues with our bodies. It is really scary. And, and here's an interesting thing. So I did, I came here to Arizona in 2011, 2012, I started having vitreous detachment in both eyes and had to have another surgery. And that's when I got my eye implant that I can see. Um, and I found that that's a surveillance system. So they're uh, tuning into our podcast right now. I know they are. <laughs> They're well, probably behind me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm waiting. Well, because you got your your closet cracked. I'm waiting to see like a finger like wrap around and. Oh, that's but. for my cat to go in <laughs> oh. to go in and sleep on the. That other makes cat. sense. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's just a cat. I think it's so fascinating that I wish I had some hard evidence like Terry because I didn't. I I don't have anything like that. I mean, he was one of the lucky ones, actually even though he doesn't feel lucky and none of us do, but, you know, to have actually a thing in his leg, you know, and an x-ray of it, because a lot of us don't have that. Yeah. And I actually included the x-ray in uh, the YouTube version of his episode uh, because it is important. But at the same time, you know, as a storyteller, I believe in the power of story and I'm, I'm an advocate for people telling their stories and just braving the stigma Brave the stigma and tell your story, which you've done. And I appreciate that because down the road, your story, Terry's story, everyone else's stories, all the stories Bud Hopkins cobbled together, John Mack and all them, uh, it's all going to make sense down the road. Uh, it's just right. a matter of keeping those logs and telling people what you're experiencing. And I yeah. appreciate that you've done that. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to tell people that it, there is a stigma. Um and it is hard for us afterwards, but um, we're doing this for humanity <laughs> because 
if nobody speaks out and we're all silent and scared, does that help anyone? It doesn't. So um, I think it's important. And that's why I decided to write it. My book too was because this is happening to people. And if nobody's talking about it, then nobody can help each other. So, so I'm, I'm so glad I met Terry and, um, you know, and he encouraged me to write my book. And, you know, it's hard writing a book. I mean, it's weird. I mean, you write books, right? Oh, yeah. It takes I mean, me years. You your first book to write and to, like, do everything. Yeah. Well, I do. And I, even today, I still do everything because I'm a stickler for graphic design. So I do all my page layout. Oh, wow. All my illustrations, my cover design. Um, and because, like... I think in terms of layers, I tend to go down rabbit holes for subject matters. Uh So it takes me years. Like the one I'm dropping in October, I started in 2016 because uh, when I start on one subject, I go down that rabbit hole. Again, it all goes to free will. So what is free will? What does that mean? when If somebody can snap their fingers and suddenly the free will of their opponent is paused... Like right. that's horror. That's a horror story to me, and so right. I'm unpacking that at the deepest <laughs> levels. And it's it's the same thing with this. Um, I'm trying to develop a monster movie because I make movies as well. Wow. So I'm exploring like what a monster is from a social standpoint, in addition to just having a monster. Right. So right. there's this one moment where this old lady's flipping through an old tube television. You know, we talked about a CRT monitor earlier. Yeah. I'm like, I know what you're talking about. Uh, she's just like flipping through a tube television and everything on TV is related to monsters in some way. So like the game show that she passes through, Monsters of History, and you know, they'll talk about Adolf Hitler or whatever, or Alexander the Great. And then it'll go to like a Maury Povic type talk show where, you know, the subject is, my child is a little monster. He keeps trying to start fires, you know, like what is a monster? And so this is, (laughs) this is why it takes me years to create anything. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think it's, it's really, really good that you're a creator then because you know what goes into creating. Um, But also I think, uh, Uh, I mean, hats off to Amazon for allowing self-publishing because that's what I was able to do. And even though um, I didn't uh, quite know what to do uh, and I had a great editor named George um, who helped me so much. I got him from from Terry Lovelace. Um, He did, I mean, he actually did the design of the cover and he, you know, helped me with every single step of the way. I mean, I couldn't have done it without him. He was so great. So, but you know, the self-publishing is so much better because you don't have to shop your book to a publisher to beg them to publish it. You know, everything is unfortunately up to you, but you know, with the marketing and all that, but um, you know, you, so many more stories can get out because there isn't that barrier of publishers. Well, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the things that I keep meaning to break up on podcasts that tackle the subject is almost all, not all of them, but almost all of the books that tackle this are in, either independently published through a small press or they're self-published by the author. Right. And I think that that is telling of just how the current publishing industry isn't doing a service to the public. Like right. we really are literally on our own getting yes. these stories out there. 
We are. And, you know, uh, putting them on Amazon or wherever and uh, marketing and, you know, all of that. I mean, and learning how to, you know, be on a podcast. I mean, it's a huge learning curve. Um, I've learned a lot. I was, I'm very grateful for everyone who has me on, my, on their show because it's a little bit more experience, you know. Um, so thank you for allowing Thanks. me on your show. Absolutely. Well, as long as I'm independent, I will definitely have you. You're welcome back anytime. And uh, I say as long as I'm independent, because I, I do know that there's this interesting story that um, that there's an actor, Dan Aykroyd. Do you know who he is? Yeah. The actor Dan Aykroyd yeah. talks about how he was supposed to do a TV show about ETs and the UFO phenomenon. And it was on a major network. And like the day they were doing their first episode they were mysteriously shut down and he, he was outside on a break and he had like a weird men in black sighting. And I just feel like if that had been more of an independent thing, they would have never been able to be shut down. Right. Um, and so I think it's important that actually we stay independent on the subject matter. I agree. I mean, I remember seeing something either on Facebook or Reddit uh, saying, you know, that uh, Mr. Rogers, do you remember him? had a show and uh, he was, you know, pretty active. I guess he put his feet in water in a little pool and he invited the policeman. It was black to put his feet in the pool because he knew that there was this huge issue, social issue with sharing pools with black people. And I thought that was so brave of him um, to do that. And it's, you know, he had to do it kind of in a sneaky way, which I thought was great. But, you know, I mean, it's great to have independence, too, because, you know, think of all the things he wanted to do, but he was not allowed to do. Yeah, I actually remember seeing that in a documentary about him. And there's also another example where um, you remember there's an actress that died recently who had the first interracial kiss on Star Trek. Uh-huh. Captain Kirk and um, oh, yeah. Lahore. Michelle. Yeah, yeah. She died like last week. And um, at least at the time that we're recording the episode. Right. It'll have been a a month or so if you're hearing it now. But um, he kept the studio or the television production company didn't want to deal with the controversy of it. So they kept trying to change it. And William Shatner kept screwing up all the takes whenever they tried to change it to ensure that the the only usable take was the kiss. (laughs) And I love that. That is great. <laughs> yeah, me too. They, we need more rebels who are fighting society. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Well, that's what you are, and I appreciate that. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm trying my best, and, um, you know, you do what you can. Yeah. Well, um, I don't log off now, um, but I, I really appreciate this. I think this was a good conversation for the listeners, and if you ever want to come on again for any reason whatsoever just feel free to reach out to me all right well thank you so much and uh i really i did have a fun time uh and i was i love all you know all of you interviewers are such fun people that i always want to be friends afterwards because you know you're open to my story and also you always have your own stories right i mean otherwise you wouldn't even have this wouldn't have the thought to have this on the on your show yeah well i feel like i'm open to it just because like one i've seen strange lights in the sky and i'm an aviation like i'm obsessed with aviation i know how to look at aircraft at night and i've seen some weird shit that is not us 
But also, yeah. like, yesterday I was on Jim Harold's Campfire. Do you know that podcast? No. Where people just kind of call in and tell their stories. And I called into Jim, Car- Jim Harold's Campfire to talk about my mother's precognitive uh, dreams and premonitions because mm-hmm. her whole life she's had premonitions and precognitive dreams. And I just find that whole, the, I find it all fascinating. And I'm pretty sure that we're not seeing reality as it truly is. And so a lot of my interest in it is kind of trying to find some level of truth that we're not seeing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. Actually, I think that um, there is so many things that we can't see that we would not be. Um, sort. I mean, we would be shocked at the truth of our situation. And I actually, um, I was watching, uh, what was it, Lou Elizondo. So he was saying he thinks the American people or any people would be very, feel very somber about the, what the truth is. And it's because whatever this illusion is that we think we're in is not the truth. And so it's just interesting once, if, if anything actually comes out, because I'm skeptical now, but it would be nice to know the truth as opposed to the illusion, because that's what we're seeing. And I think that, you know, all of us um, are breaking out of the illusion and saying, this is happening to me and it's not normal. And you guys are all so busy with your lives, you know, working your crazy hours and getting food on the table that you can't see it. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.